0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: The scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. You can follow along in the Bibles under your seats on page 909 or follow on the screen above me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he offered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This has been God's Word.
0: So from September to April... We walked together through the Gospel of Luke on Sundays and in our community group. Uh, the book was written, the, the book of Luke, was, or the Gospel of Luke, was written by Luke, who was a medical doctor and a pretty accomplished uh, historian, a st- historian of some some skill. And he was writing to a man named Theophilus, uh, who uh, we don't know really much about Theo. That's what I like to think that his friends called. him. We don't know a lot about Theo, except uh, that we're pretty sure that he was a Gentile or a non-Jew. Uh, we know that there's a pretty good chance that he was a man of some rank or position. We think that's probably true because at the beginning of Luke, when uh, Luke is opening up the the letter or the book to Theophilus, to Theo, uh, he says, oh, most excellent Theophilus, which is a title that you would give oftentimes to a, a person of some standing like a provincial governor. But we don't know that for certain, but we think that he was probably a man of some sort of rank and position. Uh, we aren't even sure if actually If he was a Christian or if he was a Christian yet or not. But what we do know about him, what does seem clear, is that Theo had seen a fast growing group of people who worshiped a man, a Gentile, a a peasant, a, a peasant Jew from Palestine named Jesus. Now, the fact that there is a group of people that worship somebody other than him wasn't an unusual thing because Roman culture, but I don't know what you think about like uh, ancient culture, but Roman culture, the culture in the Roman Empire was actually a very multicultural, a polytheistic or a... a, a a culture where people worshiped many gods. In fact, not only did they worship many gods, but they believed in the coexistence of many different religions and many people who worship different gods together. To say that your god or your religion was better than my god or my religion was unheard of in Roman culture. That was, a, that was very taboo. It was very looked down upon, which actually is not very far different than our culture that we live in today, Right? Uh, What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and it's okay whatever is true for you, and whatever is true with me is okay, as long as they, whatever you believe doesn't interfere with what I believe. That's kind of the overriding uh, milieu in American culture right now. I don't pronounce that word correctly, but I use it anyway. I'm just going to roll through it and keep on going. There were multiple ideas about religion and the nature of truth itself. This That's something else that the Roman culture had in common with our culture today. Not just that you can worship what you want to worship, and I'll worship what I want to worship, and you can worship what you want to worship, and we'll all coexist and live together and say what's good for you is good for you is good for me, and we can all be good together as long as the lines don't cross, as long as you don't interfere with me. But not only that, but the very essence of the nature of truth or the definition of truth or where truth comes from. Because if we live in a culture where what you believe is okay, what you believe is okay, what I believe is okay, then what we're really saying is there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as objective truth that's true no matter what you and I think about something. But the truth is that, again, I just used the word, the truth is that that just doesn't pan out in regular life. There are some things that are true whether you believe it or not. If I stand on this stool, I'm afraid of heights. Like when I say I'm afraid of heights, like even like standing on a stool is kind of like on the edge. On a ladder, no thank you very much. And on going on top of the roof, one reason we don't, like we do very little decorations on our outside for Christmas. And the big reason is I'm not gonna climb up on the top of the roof and put lights up there. That's not gonna happen at my house. So all our Christmas decorations are ground level where I can reach them very easily without climbing up too high. But if I stand on top of this stool or top of a ladder, and I step off, I'm going to fall to the ground. It doesn't matter whether I believe in the existence of gravity or not. That is objective truth that is true no matter what. But if you live in a society where there's no such thing as objective truth, then we can all believe whatever we want to believe. And that is what set, really, really what stood out about the fact that Theophilus or Theo wanted to know more, whether he was a Christian or not, he wanted to know more about Jesus and he wanted to know more about this Christianity thing. And what was interesting about that is because the idea of Christianity was revolutionary on a couple of levels. First of all, it was revolutionary because the message of Christianity led with something, according to what I was just talking about with the Roman culture, it led with something that would have been repulsive to the average Roman citizen, it said that there was such a thing as objective truth. And it was based upon the fact that there was only one true God. There's only one true God was his initial claim. And that was running counter-cultural and counter the the, uh, accepted idea in Roman society because if you said there's only one God and you're worshiping him and I'm not worshiping him, then my religion is faulty. Christianity opened with the salvo that it claimed that there's only one true God, and it claimed that not only that, but to worship anyone or anything else other than the one true God was to commit sin. It was sinful to worship anybody or anything else other than the one true God. And then on top of that, just to like really mess with everybody's head, it said, and that one true God was the man named Jesus who was a peasant carpenter who was raised in Palestine, lived a life of limited notoriety in the region of Israel. He died an incredibly shameful death on a cross. And then it claimed that he rose again. And by the way, he's not still walking around now so you can see him, he's gone on to heaven. So you just have to believe in him without seeing him. So not only did it, it, just ran counter to everything. It ran counter to the idea that your religion is true and my religion is true and it doesn't matter. It ran counter to the idea that there's such a thing as objective truth. It said there's one true God. It said that God was, came incarnate or in the for, human form of Jesus and that Jesus died a shameful death and now he's risen again and you can't see him. So you just have to believe him without seeing him. It was an insult to to their intelligence, and it was an insult to everything that they believed in their culture. That was revolutionary. So why would Theophilus, or Theo, whenever he hears about the story of Jesus and sees these Christians that are growing like wildfire across the Roman Empire, what would make him want to ask to know more about this, because everything that underlined Christianity was made, was of such that he would not want to know more normally. That's because the second truth is that the Christians themselves were revolutionaries. The Christians themselves were revolutionary. This was in a, a time where Roman culture and the Roman Empire, they were it was the most, still the most powerful empire, the most powerful country, not only on the face of the earth at this time, but that the, the world had ever seen. But already starting in the Roman Empire, there are starting to cracks appear in the Roman Empire and Roman culture. It's the very beginning of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And inside this this culture that has the most powerful nation on earth, I want you to hear some parallels with the nation that you're living in now, and the, that had the most powerful nation on earth and yet cracks are beginning to show in the very base, the very foundation of the empire, the very foundation of the culture itself. In the midst of that society, in the midst of that truth, there were these Christians that started to grow from the region of Israel and would now spreading past the original Jewish people that were a part of it, and it was, was, <laughs> would end up bringing in millions and millions of people across the Roman Empire that would begin to change their allegiance from other gods or the Roman Empire itself to worship the one true God who came as a man, Jesus Christ. And the lifestyle itself of these believers, these Christians, were totally different than anything the world had seen up to this time. These Christians who actually began with the, the lowest part of society, began with the slaves, who began with the peasants all across the Roman Empire, these slaves and peasants, without there being ex- any exterior change to their circumstance— Without them being free, without them being having money in their pocket, without them gaining any sort of power or notoriety or prestige, without them gaining any sort of influence and in culture at large, something changed. They began to be a people who had an unbreakable peace, an unaccounted for joy, and a sacrificial love the likes of the world has never seen. There are stories of cities where a plague would break out, and the Christian's when, as everybody else would flee the houses where the, where the plague was breaking out cr- in the whole neighborhoods where the plague was taking over, There are stories of families who, because in their time, they had very limited medical care, right? So if you had a family member who got a, a deadly plague, the only thing that you could really do medically is get you and your family out of that house and hope you didn't catch it and leave that person to suffer and die on their own in your house. And there were houses and neighborhoods that were filled with this kind of emptiness, this kind of suffering. And you know what the Christians did? They rushed into those neighborhoods. They went into those houses. They cared for the dying. They cared for the afflicted. Knowing, or first of all, trusting and hoping that God would keep them from getting that sickness, hoping that if they, that if they did, that God would heal them but trusting that no matter what happened, even if they died caring for the sick, they had a hope that was unassailable and unbreakable by anything else. And people like Theophilus, people in power, started to see this revolutionary, this quiet, unbreakable Love and joy that was turning city after city and village after village upside down, not with riots, but with the effects of joyous, sacrificial love on the part of the Christians. Theo had seen and heard enough to know that he wanted to know more. And the truth is that in the history of the world, There's nothing like the phenomenon of the church. There's nothing like the phenomenon of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who pledged their allegiance to him and bowed their knee to him as the one and only true God and have in return have professed and experienced a new birth and have experienced a, a love and a joy and a peace that they had never imagined before. And city after city and village after village and country after country have been turned upside down since then. There's been no power on earth that has been unleashed like the church. Luke sets out to write for Theo the story of Jesus and his church. And he does so in two parts. He starts with the Gospel of Luke, that's part one. And then the second part is the Acts of the Apostles, which we're beginning today. And in doing so, he's trying to answer Theophilus' questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what is his church? Who is Jesus and what is his church? As Theo looks at a people that he'd never seen the likes of which before, he sees the Roman Empire being changed village after village and city after city by these believers. He sees life after life changed as this, the word is spread from one to another. He's wondering, who is this Jesus that they are worshiping and what the heck is this church that they are part of? And Luke begins to answer those questions for Theo here in the beginning passage of Acts. In verses 1 through 11, where they we're in today, he begins to answer those questions by telling us three things. Number one, that Christianity is Jesus' life continued. Number two, Christianity is Jesus' power continued. And number three, Christianity is Jesus' kingdom continued. Christianity is Jesus' life continued, It's his power continued, and it's his kingdom continued. First of all, Christianity is Jesus's life continued. Look at verse one of Acts chapter one. If you have your Bible, you can open to it. In the first book, that's the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, Theo, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and this is an interesting phrase, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after which he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, this is an interesting phrase for Theophilus, or for Luke to open his second letter to Theophilus with, because he says, "I began in the Gospel of Luke, which is all about Jesus' birth and life and death and burial and resurrection afterwards." I began to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus, in the next couple of verses, as Justin read for us, Jesus leaves earth right here at the beginning of Acts. So it's interesting that Luke would say, I wrote to you in Luke to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach, but it's not over yet. Now that's kind of an interesting thought. Well, how could it not be over yet? because we see we'll go ahead and cheat ahead. You already read the the um the passage, look down in verse. Uh, verse 9, and when he had, that's Jesus, when he had said all these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here in verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, Jesus leaves the scene. And yet, Luke is saying, I'm writing to you this second book to tell you all that Jesus, I already told you actually in the first book, all that he began to do. And now I'm telling you in this book, the book of Acts, all that he continued to do. All that he began to do and to teach. What did he do? Well, think about his what he's just already been writing in the book of Acts. He, uh, Luke was writing about Jesus' birth. He was writing about the miracles that Jesus did. He was writing about how Jesus loved people with an incredible kind of love that the world had never seen before. He talked about how Jesus cared for people the way that no one had ever seen people care for people before. It shows how Jesus confronted people, but the people he confronted were not the people you would expect. Jesus, who was God, didn't come and give his harshest criticism to those people who were sinners, he gave his harshest criticism to the religious leaders who were sinners who acted like they weren't. That's who he confronted. That was unheard of to this time. We saw his Jesus, his death. How he told his disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to, be, I'm going to be killed. I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. He came, and he was turned over to the authorities. He was unjustly accused, and he was turned over to the Roman authorities, and they said, we don't see any problem, but we'll go ahead with it. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was nailed to the cross. He hung on the cross. He died. He was pierced on the side. After he died, he was taken and put into a borrowed tomb, and then on the third day after that, boom, the tomb is empty, and he is risen. In, indeed. There's been nobody in the world like Jesus to this point. Nobody came with the peace and unbreakable joy and unbreakable love who held both the truth of God's commands and yet this incredible amount of grace and love all at the same time. Each of us are kind of put on the hook differently. Some of us in here are truth people. We're the rules followers. You know who you are. You're the ones who are very careful while you're playing a game or you're playing like, you're the ones that when you're playing pickup games, you're always calling foul. You're that person. You're the person who makes sure that, hey, we got to do this by the rules. This is the way it says things are supposed to be done. You're the person who, and this is like me, like there's a certain way that you clean the kitchen or you wash the dishes. There's a certain particular way you load the dishwasher. This is the slot for spoons, and this is the slot for, sport, for sporks. If you have sporks in your house, which would be awesome, there would be a particular slot for them that I would be keeping track of. You know who you are. You're a rule follower, and you want to make sure everybody around you follows the rules as well. Some of us are just naturally put on the hook that way. And some of us are the, the gracie people, the loving people. The it's okay people, the don't worry about it people. Don't worry about it, it's no big deal. You're easygoing. But few things ever get done in your house oftentimes. There's no real order to your life. But you love people. We need both those people, by the way. But you know what Jesus did that was revolutionary? He combined those two in one. He was full of truth. And he was full of grace and love at the same time. Truth and grace only finds a common, they're like oil and vinegar for us most of the time. It only found its communion in the person of Jesus. And it found it particularly with him on the cross. Because it's on the cross that Jesus took the penalty that you had due to you for all that you've done, for all of your rebellious deeds and your rebellious heart against God who created you, for all the ways that you wanted to do things your own way, for all the things that you tried to worship other than him, for all the empty wells that you dug with your life to try to find something that would answer the deepest longings of your soul other than him, he took the penalty for that. The penalty that was due to you was poured out. But if you're a believer in Jesus, it was poured out upon Christ for you and not directly upon you. And that's the grace. That the, what you had coming to you was poured out, but he took it instead. The grace and love exhibited in the life of Jesus. That's what he began to do. He did miracles, and he showed love, and he cared for people. But the great thing that he did, he was continually telling his disciples, I came to give my life. All that he began to do and all that he began to teach. Jesus came, and he came to save us, and he was continually telling people that. He was continually telling us about our our state apart from God. And yet, that he had come to sacrifice his life for us. That's why the teaching of who Jesus was and what he did is called the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news doesn't start off sounding like good news, it says you're a sinner. You are under condemnation. You are not by nature and by choice a rebel against the king, the almighty king God. But the good news is what follows that it says, and yet Jesus came and took the bullet for you that you had rightly coming to you. That's incredibly good news. And it's that news that revolutionized the lives of the people who heard it for the first time. Imagine being a slave in a Roman household. And if you were born into a certain status in society, you almost never could get above that status in the society. If you were born as a peasant, if you were born as a slave, the likelihood was that you were going to die a peasant or die a slave. And yet this message comes to you that says, you know what? you're actually far worse off than than you think you are. Because your greatest problem isn't the oppression of your owners or the Roman system above you. Your greatest problem is that you're a rebel against God and his wrath is set against you. And yet, you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream through Christ. That slave, that peasant... Even though none of his external circumstances changed, his whole entire outlook on life changed. He had a dignity. He had a love. He had a status. He had an identity that wasn't based upon his external circumstances. It was based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. And no matter what happened to him, there was hope to come because he was going to be united with his father, the almighty creator God, when he last closed his eyes and took his last breath. Has that message, is that truth had that effect in your heart? Maybe you grew up thinking that Christianity is about not doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. And so you've lived your life thinking, I've done the right thing or I've done more right things than I have the wrong things. And you think, like, that's, that's what life is about. I have good standing with God because I've done more good than I have bad. That's not the message. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is all of our works are like filthy rags but he has clothed us with his pure righteousness in exchange for our dirty rags. Have you experienced a new identity and a new peace and a new joy based in his work on your behalf? If you haven't, I pray this would be the morning that you would. The story of Jesus is about the reunification of man to his creator through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This began and begins a whole new type of existence. The the first believers who believed in Jesus Christ began a whole new type of existence. It's true that there was nobody like Jesus before he came. But you know what is also true, and this is even kind of crazy to say it, that hasn't been true since. That Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ, share in his life and nature. The things that made Jesus so different from anybody who had come before, when you become a Christian, you are born again, you share the life of Jesus within you. You are part of a whole new type of humanity. You are part of a whole new existence. Your source of identity and love and peace comes from somewhere totally different. The life of Jesus, if you are a Christian, is continued in you. Is that your experience? The revolutionary truth of the gospel has been a spring of life to people and communities ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven. The ascension of Jesus is the ending of the gospel, of the news of who who he was and what he came to do, but it's the beginning of new life for us. You know how that can be? It can be because not only is Christianity Jesus' life continued, but Christianity is Jesus' power continued. Look at, verse, look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart. These are the apostles he's talking to. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not far from now. Now, this is Jesus's last interaction with his followers. These are the last things he's saying to them before he's jetting out of earth. These are the last thing he's saying to them before he is being lifted up. Now, it's interesting because the apostles, the disciples, his followers, had already been given the mission He had already told them, here's the mission that I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. That's what I've called you to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, he had already given them the mission. They had already lived with him for three years and heard his teachings. They had seen him killed. They had seen him buried. They had seen him risen again. Now, you would think between that and him giving them the mission, which, by the way, if you and I had seen that, that would be incredible, right? Right? I mean, you saw the risen Jesus who you saw die. Your world had ended when you saw him pierce in the side. You thought, man, I have put my money on the wrong, the wrong, the wrong number. I've, in the, I've invested in the wrong stock. And yet he came back to life. You would think like, now go. You've seen me. This is real. Now go. But what he tells them is, but before you go, this is incredibly important. Even though I've already given you the mission, You've already seen me killed and resurrected. There's still something I need you to do. I need you to go and wait in Jerusalem. You can't proceed on the mission without this. You can't follow me without this. Even though you've seen, you've walked with me, you've seen the proof of my resurrection, and though you have heard my mission to go and make disciples, you have to wait to receive the great promise of the Father. Now, when the disciples heard this, they would have had ringing in their ears these uh, prophecies that had been scattered throughout the Old Testament, where God had said, here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to take your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I will be your God, and you will be my people and my spirit will be in you and it will be among you. That was the great promise of the New Testament. That's what Jesus was pointing to. He's saying, you cannot go, though you have seen and you have believed, you cannot go and be my disciples and be my witnesses until you have received the promise of the Father, which is the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit upon you. You can't go. Because you need my power. You need my life. You need the very power that enabled me to do the things that I did. It you know, would have been thinking about and, and remembering Jesus going down to the Jordan and being baptized by John the Baptist and coming out of the water and the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove and immediately Jesus going out. Before that, he didn't have a great ministry. After that, he left. And there were healings and he preached the gospel and amazing things began to happen. And that's what set in motion his three years of ministry that would lead to his final death burial, and resurrection of the end. They were to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It gives a, a picture. There was two kind of pictures that would have been in their mind at the time. A Jewish society had been one of a picture of cleansing. That water cleanses us. And it also would have been a picture of being overwhelmed. You go down in the water, and the water covers you and overwhelms you. They were to receive Power, he tells us in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, but not until you wait for the promise of the Father. This was an incredible promise. They would have been thinking about jesus life, and they would have been thinking how he was baptized with the Holy Spirit and power, and then he spoke like nobody had ever spoken before and he 's saying i 'm going to baptize you and fill you with the same power that it filled me and enabled me to fulfill my mission, the same power and ability that filled me and enabled me to speak the truth with power and to heal the sick and to be the hands and feet of God on earth, that same power will fill you and enable you. The idea of that kind of power being placed upon them would have been incredible. And it should be incredible for us to think about too. Jesus said, you haven't really shared my life You haven't really been, you can believe all the right things, but you're not born again until you've been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Christianity, at its very nature, at its very core, is a mystical religion. What we believe is that not just that Jesus came and was crucified on our behalf and rose again. But we believe as Christians that his Holy Spirit has been sent. The promise of the Father has been sent to us who believe in Christ. And we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power and presence of the Holy Spirit dwells within us individually as believers. And dwells within us collectively as the church. He will, I will be in you. And I will be among you. Is that your experience? Is that our experience of the church in, in America? One of the reasons that the church in America is, is a lot like the church at the beginning of, the, the, the beginning of the, its, its very infancy in the Roman Empire. It was a minority religion. It was looked down upon. And America, in, in America, the church is becoming increasingly that. And I think the reason that we are increasingly marginalized is because we are increasingly powerless as a church. And I think that comes from a couple of places. One is I think it comes from people who adhere to the belief system of Christianity. They say, I believe Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected. But they have not bowed their knee to him and experienced the new birth and the filling of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and souls. Have you experienced that? Is it a mental religion to you is it a set of beliefs that you hold to or is it a true and living reality and power within your soul do you experience and know the presence and power of God through the presence and power of the third person of God had the holy spirit of God in your heart and soul I pray for you if you have not experienced that, that today would be the day for you. And if you are a believer in Christ, that today would be reawakened to the truth and the call that Christianity is a religion of power, that the church is the living temple of the Holy Spirit where he dwells, where Jesus dwells in and among us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That collectively and individually we are the temples and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. Christianity is Jesus' power continued and Christianity is Jesus' kingdom, is his, sorry, his power continued. Not a power that comes from a clenched fist or a sword but a power that comes from a proclamation of a true and living gospel and the experience of a true and living Savior in us and among us. That's where the Christians received the courage and the power to stand up for Christ in the face of death. That's how they received the power and courage to care for those who are sick and Dying in the face of death, not through a mental religion, but through a heartfelt living relationship with a living Savior. Christianity is the life of Jesus continued, it's the power of Jesus continued, and lastly and quickly, Christianity is Jesus' kingdom continued. Look at, (coughs) excuse me, look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they've heard Jesus saying that you're gonna <coughs> excuse me, you're gonna wait and receive power from the Holy Spirit upon you. They've heard him say you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which they would have been thinking about the power and presence of God in their lives. So they're thinking now, now is the time that Jesus is going to set himself up or set somebody up as the king of Israel and is going to restore the king of Israel to its former glory. We're going to throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire and we're going to be the, the, the nation and the kingdom that he had called Israel to be a, 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 the place where God's presence dwelled and his glory was shown and declared to all the people around. And he didn't deny that that was happening. He said to them, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, so he's telling them, they're they're asking, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he's saying, I'm not going to tell you when the times and different seasons of it is going to happen, but here's what you need to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What he's saying is that his kingdom, which is the, where the rule and reign of Jesus is experienced, his kingdom, which is where he is king and he is in charge and his subjects worship him and love him and serve him. And inside that kingdom is all that makes up the kingdom of God, the peace and the joy and love and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. His kingdom is experienced. By his believers through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. You you want the picture that's painting? As he's saying, and then you'll be my witness, he's saying as you, you individually, as you go to your homes and to your neighborhoods and to your workplaces and your schools and your gyms and wherever you go through the day and through your life, as you go individually, a taste of the kingdom of God should be going with you to the people who are around you in those places. They should see and smell and taste something different in you and the way that you live your life through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Under the, because you are under the rule and reign of Jesus, you are a living, moving embassy That shows the kingdom of God in the midst of hostile and dark territory. And then we collectively as a people, as we gather and we share life together and we worship together and as we do all, as we share life together as a people, that when people come around that, they see in our interactions, in the way that we treat each other, in the way that in our, in the, our economy itself, the way we treat money, we treat possessions, we treat career, we treat everything that is involved in our lives, even recreation, the way we treat all of those things, they see an outpost of the kingdom of God, not only in your life individually, but in our lives collectively as the church. That kingdom, that picture of kingdom, conveys the idea of authority, Christ's authority over us individually and over us as the church. When we are walking in that authority, when we are worshiping him and living to him, then his kingdom is experienced in us by us and by the people around us, and it is is expanded through us witnessing to that truth. We witness to that truth by demonstrating it, and we witness to that truth by declaring it, by saying, hey, as people see, they see the kingdom lived out in me, and they see the kingdom lived out in us, but then we share with them Here's what witnessing is: It's just sharing about the truth and the reality of something you've seen and experienced. If you witness a car crash, you're not, and you're giving your report to the officer. You don't have to be incredible in your storytelling. Doesn't matter how great a preacher you are at that point. You're just sharing with the officer what you saw and experienced. That's what the early apostles did. They shared what they had seen and experienced in the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and their own experience of that life in their hearts, and that's all that we have to do. His kingdom is experienced through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and it's expanded through the witnessing of his children to that truth. And lastly, when he had said these things, verse 9, they were looking on. He was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Jesus' ascension. This is... Amazing truth for us Christians. You would think that him leaving would be a loss to us. Like, man, I wish we had him still around. Like, like if we had him, it'd be like we had Tom Brady and we could win every single game. But his ascension back into heaven, I hate the Patriots, but I have to appreciate it. His ascension back into heaven, his being seated at the right hand of the Father assures us of his ultimate authority. There is nothing that you will meet in life, no challenge, that is above the authority of Jesus Christ. Because nothing, no power, no authority, as powerful as it may seem in your life and in my life, no power or authority supersedes the power and authority of the almighty creator God. And your king and my king, who is seated on the throne at this very moment, so we can go with an assurance and a confidence. We're playing with house money, baby. You can't steal it. Jesus' ascension assures, of his, assures us of His ultimate authority. It assures us that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given. He said, "I let me go." It will be better for you if I go, because if I go, I will give you and I will send you the promise of the Father, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And his ascension assures us of his sure return. You notice what they left with? They said, why are you standing here staring up into heaven? Don't just stand here staring up into heaven. Go and do what he said to do in the power that he is sending you. But know He's coming again. And he will make everything right at that time. Jesus began a new kingdom when he came. He showed us a new way of living. And we are now partakers in that. That kingdom was introduced on earth at his first coming. And for now, we experience sort of a now and not yet where this kingdom has come, but yet not fully come. When he comes back, it will Until then, true Christianity is when the presence and power and authority of Jesus is experienced, demonstrated, and declared by his people. He's called us to nothing less than that. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today.